Genentech believes in asking the big questions, questions that have the power to chip away at inequities in healthcare. For example, why are black women 42% more likely to die of breast cancer, but only represent 3% of participants in clinical trials studying the disease? How can healthcare industry partners address not just the symptoms, but the root causes of an inequitable system? At Genentech, the answers lead to action, like establishing and expanding the Advancing Inclusive Research Site Alliance. This international coalition of clinical research centers is meeting patients in their communities, increasing access to innovative treatments, and working to dispel myths about inclusive research. Learn more about how Genentech is making healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. As you all know, I've lived on Long Island basically my entire life. To me, Cold Spring Harbor was mostly a train station that I would pass through while commuting to high school via the Long Island Railroad. It's an affluent hamlet located in Suffolk County on the North Shore. The place is beautiful and right on the water. You can always see a ton of boats right there in the harbor. Now, as I got older, I learned that it was home to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, an esteemed scientific research facility. I've always been interested in science, so it felt cool to me that there was this fancy and important center basically in my backyard. And if you're involved in the life sciences at all, you've definitely heard of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Nobel Prize winner James Watson was a former president of the lab. I knew that Watson was shunned by the scientific community because of his controversial views on race, and I know that he's made racist remarks in the past. So as we were reporting on this season of Color Code, I came across the laboratory and the history of its eugenics record office. That intrigued me and I knew we had to learn more about this chapter and its history and the impact it's had since. I'm Nick St. Fleur and this is Color Code. For today's episode, we're looking at something that not many people know about Long Island, and that's its early connection and impact on the legacy of scientific racism. But before we get into that, first I'd like to introduce a new voice to the Color Code team, my colleague Anil Oza. Hello, I'm excited to be here. Anil has been helping out a lot with this season of Color Code. Together, we've been looking into the wild history of eugenics. Yes, eugenics, here on Long Island. For many people, when they think about eugenics, they probably think about things like Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and white supremacy. Eugenics was first, though, a pseudoscience practiced by esteemed researchers in places like the UK and the US. The goal of this type of science was to use information about genetics and desirable inherited traits to alter and quote-unquote improve the human gene pool. At the time, it solidified race as a way to determine who was fit or not fit, who should be able to have kids or not, and who should be able to immigrate to places like the U.S. But what you might not know is that Long Island was once the eugenics capital of the world, from the 1910s to the 1920s at a research center called the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. The lab's eugenics record office was where scientists conducted eugenics research, which made its way to the halls of Congress, the Supreme Court, and even to Nazi Germany. 
eugenics refers to in its original formulation uh, as uh, from the British uh, movement that that it emerged from as uh, really good breeding or being well-bred, right? That's Jack Chen, a historian at Rutgers University. And as he says in his bio, Jack's work tells the stories and realities of those excluded and deemed unfit in master narratives. The pioneers of eugenics were statisticians who were really believing that they were finding some deeper truth through numbers that they could discern. But of course, we know now that numbers only say certain things. You know, it depends on how you frame the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But they were um, fascinated by quantitative forms of documentation. While most of the season has focused on how where you live affects your health, we're going to take a look at the origins of this popular pseudoscience that tried to argue the exact opposite, that actually genetics was the most important factor in your health. The history and legacy of eugenics in the U.S. has been kind of swept under the rug. We'll take a closer look at how eugenics and racism actually lead to why where you live can determine health inequities. So we dug into it. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory was first founded in 1890, inspired by these exciting new discoveries in biology, in genetics, and evolution that were brought to the world by Charles Darwin and Gregor Mendel over in Europe. Their work found a fan in a man named Charles Davenport. He was the director of Cold Spring Harbor in 1904. So Davenport, along with, of course with other people, started looking at Mendelian genetics in relation to human beings. He and his wife published short little papers on skin colour, eye colour, hair. It was thought that Mendelian genetics, Mendelian genetics underlied all, all sorts of human traits, not just eye colour, for example. That's Jan Witzkowski. He's a special advisor at the lab, but he's worked there for decades, researching and teaching students about genetics. And when he says Mendelian genetics, these were the experiments we all learned about in biology class with how traits governed by a single gene spread from generation to generation that was first identified in peas. Now, earlier this summer, Anil and I went to visit Jan at his office. It's a little distance away from the main Code Spring Harbor lab campus. We wanted to know how Davenport led Code Spring Harbor to become basically the epicenter of eugenics in the United States. Yeah, no, no do go to the office. Oh, yeah, cool, yeah. Just go straight through. Great. Wow. Very beautiful in here. I know. Wow, what a beautiful office. It's got some soothing tunes. Yan's office is huge and filled with all sorts of genetics paraphernalia. Statues of double helixes, bobbleheads of Charles Darwin, printed out comics about evolution, and bookshelves taller than Nick or I with hundreds of books all about genetics. We wanted to know how Cold Spring Harbor Lab, the place that we were sitting in, shaped the field of genetics in the decades since. Charles Davenport was the third director of the biological laboratory. And he was really the first American scientist to pick up on Mendel's genetics. Davenport got funding to start what was then called the Station for Experimental Evolution, which would eventually include a new lab called the Eugenics Record Office, which was created in 1910. 
And their goal was to move this research on genetics and evolution they were doing on things like chickens and mice and other animals into humans. But they couldn't do the sorts of analyses of genetic inheritance that they did in these animals with such short lifespans in humans. So they turned to pedigree analysis. Picture a family tree, but instead of just pictures and names, it was tracking different traits through a family, say eye color or hair color. The ERO, eugenicist, would go around interviewing people and mailing out questionnaires to piece together how these traits were passed down from generation to generation. They would collect the data on three by five inch note cards. By 1924, they had amassed more than 750,000 cards in their records. What's interesting is they did correctly identify some traits as being inherited, such as albinism or the blood disorder hemophilia. But they also attributed actions such as crime, adultery, prostitution, homicide, and even perjury as being hereditary traits. One rather ridiculous example is that Davenport thought that Thallus Ophelia, or a love of the sea, was also hereditary or passed down from family member to family member. It was, it was obviously recognized you couldn't do breeding experiments with human beings, so the only way you could get genetic data was to go out and look for traits in, in families. And that's what eugenics records of it went out. The office sent trainees door-to-door, interviewing families. While this practice seems so archaic and foreign to something you would see nowadays, Yen says it was seen as normal and even cutting-edge science at the time. So much so that these eugenicists had a jingle of sorts that they would sing at the lab and as they would work. <laughs> Don't ask me to sing. No, <laughs> you have to sing that's it. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> uh, we are eugenicists so gay, we have no time for play. Serious, we have to be working for posterity. We're so happy, we're so This was all part of a bigger effort at the time, a period known as the Progressive Era, to use data and science in every part of life. Combined with new insights into genetics and evolution, some saw this as the natural progression. We talked about this with science journalist Angela Sani, who has written the book Superior, The Return of Race Science, about how the history of eugenics still shows up today. You know, we have to ask ourselves why this was, why they believed that eugenics could be the answer to social ills. And I think part of it was because the early 20th century in many parts of the world was a time when people really thought that technology could save the world, that you could change the world using technology through architecture, through industrialization, through the development of machinery. People had already seen in the First World War the power of um, powerful armaments and machinery in war situations, how that could outstrip what any individual human being could do. And so I think there was this susceptibility combined with existing prejudices about minority groups that maybe people could fix this problem if they just used science, (laughs) that science could be the solution to this social problem. Part of what made the lab the eugenics capital of the world during its time was the lab did begin to use their work to enforce political agendas. So they had this large collection of pedigrees, but they were also pushing their research out in op-eds and sending folks from the lab down to Washington. 
They argued for policies they said would lower certain rates of crimes or things like alcoholism in the population that they said were genetic. Initially, that took the form of anti-immigration and forced sterilization policies, and both can be tied to a man named Harry Laughlin. In some ways, I think, well, in most ways, I think Harry Laughlin was the villain of the piece. Laughlin was the superintendent of the lab under Davenport, but he was the one that was taking the lab's work and their pedigree analysis and going to Washington to push for eugenic policies even when the field of genetics was becoming increasingly aware that this wasn't backed by science. These categories were never, never clearly defined. You know, Feeble-mindedness was, was a category, but could encompass a whole variety of, 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 of conditions. And I, so I suppose that even in the, in the context of the time, it was clear that this, that this approach was not, was not working. That last bit Jan mentioned was a big part of the lab's history, what was then called quote-unquote feeble-mindedness. David Miklos says that this idea of feeble-mindedness probably wouldn't have taken off without the lab. Dave is the executive director of the Dolan DNA Learning Center at Cold Spring Harbor, who has set off a whole effort to digitize the archives from their eugenics record office. But eugenic sterilization would have never happened without the eugenics lobby. So the main problem that a lot of people saw was a mental illness that was called feeble-mindedness. Obviously it wasn't a real genetic, a, a real mental disease because you know we don't have anything called feeble-mindedness now. It was considered extremely common. It was considered almost to be epidemic and it was characterized by uh, low scores on IQ tests the Eugenics Records Office said that this issue was genetic, mostly weaponizing this diagnosis against poor women who had children before marriage. They said that this trait was recessive, meaning that both parents would need the gene for their children to be feeble-minded. They used this reasoning to push for sterilizing women that they had labeled as feeble-minded. So what do you do about feeble-mindedness? If I mean, again, it didn't really exist, but what, what would you do if you thought it was around? Well, you could segregate out people who you thought were feeble-mindedness, put them in mental institutions so that they basically couldn't reproduce. And that's what was done for a long time. Despite not being a real diagnosis, the Eugenics Records Office managed to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. While a handful of states had previously tried to sterilize women because of feeble-mindedness, it was usually struck down by courts who said it was unlawful. So the eugenicists at Cold Spring Harbor made what was called a model eugenic sterilization law that they hoped would could then stand up in courts. And then they looked around for a case to, you know, a test case for eugenic sterilization. And they found this person in, in Virginia. Her name was Carrie Buck, and she was in the F Virginia colony for feeble-minded and epilep epileptics. Uh, she had had a child out of wedlock. She had been born out of wedlock to her mother. And indeed, there's a photo you can find of Carrie with her mother. And they're both incarcerated in the Virginia colony for feeble-minded and epileptics. So they said, this is a great case. You know, here's three generations of feeble-minded women. And how do they determine that this baby who was six months at the start of the first trial of Virginia 
Vivian, the baby was only six months old. <laughs> so somehow, we, we don't know exactly, but somehow a caseworker from the eugenics records office named Arthur Estabrook went to look at Vivian and pronounced that she was, quote, not quite right. And on the strength of that, you know, the eugenicist said, we have hereditary feeble-mindedness from the grandmother to the daughter to the granddaughter. That happened in Virginia, went all the way through the Virginia court to the Virginia Supreme Court. And then it came to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927. So in a few years, we'll have the 100th anniversary of Buck, what's called Buck versus Bell. Um, and in that Supreme Court decision, Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of imbeciles is enough. If you can immunize people against a disease, then we should essentially inoculate ourselves against mental illness by sterilizing the people who he said are manifestly, manifestly unfit to carry on their kind. Immediately after the trial, Carrie was sterilized against her will right in the courthouse. And in the decade after... Dave says an estimated 30,000 people were sterilized. But these laws and ideas went beyond the U.S. The Nazis got hold of the model sterilization law that had been made here at Cold Spring Harbor and that had been used to sterilize Carrie Bach. Uh, and they adopted it. It's virtually identical to the law that the model law that was written. And within a couple of years, they had sterilized 300,000 people in Nazi Germany. And that guy behind the American eugenic sterilization law? That's Harry Laughlin again, the superintendent of the lab at Cold Spring Harbor. In, in the late 1930s, they wanted to give him a, a honorary PhD at the University of Heidelberg in Germany because this law was so great. And eugenicists in the United States, some of them were saying, isn't that great? Nazi Germany is really going to town with uh, eugenic sterilization. They're doing way better than we did. Well, of course, that was part of the beginning of the Holocaust. Eugenics, as it was lauded by the ERO, was over by the end of the Second World War. Now, eugenics had been discredited scientifically in the United States before World War II. And then popular, as a popular movement, it died when people figured out what was going on in Nazi Germany. But scientifically, it was dead in the mid-1930s when uh, a group of scientists came to the eugenics record office and basically said all the stuff that they had done over the last decades had no scientific merit at all and that they should stop all these social programs. Cold Spring Harbor is also unique among labs and schools that had a part to play in the eugenics movement, which includes the American Museum of Natural History, Yale, and Stanford. Unlike all these other places, Cold Spring Harbor has tried to be transparent about their past wrongdoings and make that history open to the public. Dave and Yan drove this push for the lab together as many archives from the eugenics records office as they could and put it all online. It all started when Dave was putting together a history of Cold Spring Harbor to commemorate an anniversary of the lab and came across the eugenics records office. When, when we published this eugenics archive, which is still online, we're getting ready to sort of revitalize it now, but when we put these materials online, overwhelmingly people were happy that we had done that. 
but as an organization, you know, to sort of come clean that we had had a role in all this, a lot of other organizations still haven't really done that. One of the people that's made use of this digitized records is Jack Chen, who's a historian at Rutgers that we heard from earlier in the show. What's most important to me is to be engaged with communities uh, to present uh, collective stories that have never been really represented or always been undervalued and to kind of push back against the individual narrative, which often is the uh, success story of one group. A lot of Jack's work has focused on different racial groups in New York during the 20th century. And while he was focused on Chinese immigrants and Chinatown, he found himself looking into the ways that eugenics contributed to anti-immigration laws. And in 2014, he created an exhibit called Haunted Files, the Eugenics Record Office, that was basically a replica of what the lab probably looked like at that time. So for me, I think this question of what's the relationship between uh, uh, kind of racial ideas, medicalized racial ideas like that, and also uh, how the Chinese exclusion laws in 1882 actually contributed to the formation of the 1924 immigration laws, which are really specifically eugenics wired. For the exclusion exhibit, we made sure we had a good section on eugenics in a way that uh, dealt with immigration restriction Mm -hmm. acts and how the Chinese Exclusion Act actually empowered the notion that you could exclude other groups. He became so interested in the role eugenics played at the time, So he went beyond the digitized records Cold Spring Harbor has released and actually tried to find some of the original documents from the lab. I was, uh, a phone call came in to me saying that, oh, did you know that uh, some of the original files from the eugenics record office, including the filing cabinets, are up in Bar Harbor, Maine at the Jackson Laboratories? And the director had retired and put a lot of these files into his garage. And he had just passed away and his wife wanted to get rid of the filing cabinets and the files. Mm -hmm. So I rushed up there and we were able to rescue some of the actual filing cabinets and then had the files transferred to the American Philosophical Society. Uh, So we got the idea once we looked at the files at the American Philosophical Society that, oh, actually, we can do an exhibit around the files. But Mm -hmm. how do you present that, right? Jack didn't want to make any old, boring exhibit. He wanted something that could really show the gravity and callousness of what was going on in the eugenics record office. My interest in doing many exhibits is to move more and more towards um, creating a feeling that uh, a space is haunted and that uh, people who were, are working in that space maybe have just left uh, going on a coffee break, that you can then kind of sneak into a space and start stooping around the the drawers of the desk and the files and all that and start discovering what seems to be a mundane office from a certain time period that there's um there's evil basically evil lurking in those files jack basically created a smaller version of the lab so that people could walk around and investigate the inner workings of what the eugenicist did. So what you see is a reception desk uh, with some uh, elbow lamps um, of the time period and um, uh, and files that are open on a table. And uh, that would be the reception desk in which uh, basically we'd have an identity. It was played out like a movie script. We'd have the identity of who was at that desk uh, played out and it would be matching uh, 
one of the files of someone who had been working at the eugenics record office. And then we had um, the desk of Charles Davenport in the back uh, with a pipe. Um, and we'd have basically kind of a, a makeshift office with files that would have then uh, some of the files that we actually recovered. And Jack said, this way of being able to understand the history of eugenics is unique. Other work looking into this has been filtered by a handful of scholars who are mainly white and male. Seeing the atrocities of the Second World War marked the end of this era of the eugenics movement, end of the eugenic records office. But we still see its legacy today in other, more subtle ways. It comes up in the way that we use race in medicine and how we categorize people in scientific studies. But Jack says this is a conversation that we are only just beginning to have. So their emphasis is to say it's a pseudoscience, we're past it, let's move on, right? But in fact, the framing of what eugenics was is terribly important because it impacts what the legacy and unresolved issues that still remain in terms of scientific racism and the ongoing ways in which eugenics thinking and the knowledge formation and classification systems that is that are embodied in eugenics uh, still go on, right? Uh, so that's a very important debate that um, hasn't fully happened. One of the clear ways that Jack says we are seeing the effects of eugenics is in the boom in AI we've seen recently and all of the data behind it. So much of the way in which eugenics continues is now increasingly being automated in terms of algorithms and certain kinds of classification systems that have not been sufficiently interrogated, which, as you know, probably is also played out with surveillance cameras mm -hmm. and the uh, the lack of critical discernment in terms of, let's say, how photographs are taken and how video images are taken that automatically privilege white skin. But on a larger scale, we see in the presence of modern day race science, journalist Angela Saini explained. So the study of race segued from the study of kind of crude physical differences into this attempt to see if there were any molecular differences, genetic differences between populations of people and to look at populations in a more fine-grained way. Now, as I've argued, a lot of that retained this, the old lexicon of race. Um, you know, sometimes it was just the language that changed. The research didn't really change a huge deal at all. And in her book, Angela was trying to show that we may not be as far from the eugenics that were prominent over 100 years ago. Well, we often imagine race science and eugenics as something that belongs to the past, that this was a pseudoscientific way of thinking about human difference that was prevalent in the 19th century. And um, now we don't really have this problem anymore, that scientists think about things very differently, that they understand us much better. But actually, what I was trying to do with Superior was show that even among those people that you would expect to be very wise and smart in the way that they think about race, they still fall into these same tracks. You know, this kind of um, physicians that treat us every day to geneticists, high level researchers um, are still stuck in these myths that were first constructed maybe two, three hundred years ago. And these aren't just biases that people have. Eugenics has influenced a lot of the ways we've discussed racism in medicine on this podcast. Whether that's myths about giving birth as a person of color. If you're Asian, in my case, I was told you're more likely to give birth 
early. Um, and in, in the event, I should say, I gave birth late. I had to be induced at 40 weeks when I had my son. Or about black folk having thicker skin and having higher pain tolerances. If you believe that a black patient doesn't feel pain in the same way, you are less likely to give them the same amount of pain medication. Or assumptions that go into our research before someone even steps foot into a hospital. You know, there is still the practice of so-called race correction um, that is used to alter the baseline of individual patients depending on their race when it comes to things like kidney function, lung function, <laughs> completely pseudoscientific and not backed up at all by the data that we have. Even beyond medicine, there are other ways that we see the remnants of eugenics. Angela says that how some countries do or don't support new parents and our constant need for self-improvement could be tied to eugenics. So there is child benefit, which is essentially welfare payments that are given to all people when they have children to support them when they're having children. But that cap, there is a cap after which if you have a certain number of children, those benefits stop. And it could be argued, and I've heard people argue this, that that is a form of eugenic control. It is essentially saying to poorer families, you can't have too many children because the state will stop supporting you after a point. Um, now, that sounds very subtle, but many countries have that. Many countries have these very subtle ways of involving themselves in human reproduction. But even culturally, you know, if we look at, for example, if you're on social media, this constant exhortation on each of us to be our best possible selves, this idea that we are improvable as individuals. Who are we improving for? <laughs> Why is it that we need to be improved at all? I think that has its roots in that time when people genuinely believed that humans were on a trajectory towards improvement, that the race, our race as humans, could be improved and that it was the onus was on every single one of us to be the best version of ourselves, to have the highest quality children. You know, the modern day fear about designer babies. Why is that a fear at all? It's because parents want perfect kids. One bright side, though, is that Angela says that she's seen a change in how institutions are thinking about their connections to eugenics. Cold Spring Harbor tried to bring it to the forefront in the 90s, but since 2020, more museums and research institutions have begun to consider how their eugenic roots could be influencing them now. It's quite remarkable what has happened, especially since the murder of George Floyd. There has been this enormous sea change in the way that universities and institutions think about their relationships to eugenics, to slavery, to empire, any conversations around slavery, renaming was an incredibly fraught topic and still is, and still is in the US depending on which state you're in. So for example, in Florida, it is very difficult now to do anything around, you know, that feels like critical race engagement or any anything about examining America's more seedy histories. Um, but I have seen in other, in certain East Coast institutions and on the West Coast at Berkeley, but particularly at Yale, now they have this anti-eugenics um, program where they bring in students, very young students, to engage with Yale's own eugenics legacy, which is pretty profound. Um, so there are, I think, wonderful things happening, very grassroots, very much bottom up rather than top down because the people at the top are uh, concerned about losing funding, losing the support of 
benefactors, um, their endowments, <laughs> all kinds of things. So there is this nervousness, but at the same time, you know, you can only hold back for so long because a lot of this information is available online. And that last bit about making all of the information we could scrounge up public is the real value behind efforts like the ones we were talking about at Cold Spring Harbor. I agree with Anil here. I'm going to be honest, it's been challenging reflecting on this episode. Learning about Long Island's involvement in the eugenics movement has been really eye-opening for me. Digging up this dark piece of history, it's left me both intrigued, yet deeply, deeply unsettled. But it's also given me this sort of renewed determination to continue to unravel the complex threads of our past and understand how they're woven into our present. Yet it's through understanding these scientific missteps and grappling with these uncomfortable truths that I think we can pave a way for progress. One that benefits everyone, regardless of your genetics or where you live. Now in other episodes of this podcast, we've heard about how Long Island has failed to confront its racist history time and time again. How it's often turned a blind eye to the issues of race and the cascading effects that that has had on people's health and well-being here today. But having Code Swing Harbor not shy away from its dark history and its role in perpetuating racism and pseudoscience, and in fact confronting it head on, it's, it's an admirable first step. And perhaps we can learn to start these deeply uncomfortable and unsettling conversations by reckoning with this disgraceful piece of Long Island's past. Thank you for listening and being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Anil Oza is our intern, who has contributed some especially great reporting to this episode. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com. Mm-hmm.